Welcome to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez, the podcast that offers practical advice and tips on how to run and grow your small business. The How of Business helps aspiring entrepreneurs and small business owners achieve their definition of success and overcome challenges that get in their way. This podcast series focuses on the everyday common business issues, challenges, and opportunities that face the small business owner. So here now are your hosts of The How of Business, David and Henry. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. This is Henry Lopez, and I have with me today a guest, Randy Long. Randy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here, Henry. Let me give uh, our listeners a little bit of background on Randy, and then we'll get started. Uh, Randy is the CEO of Long Business Advisors and the creator of the Brave Heart Planning Process and the author of the book, The Brave Heart Exit, Seven Steps to Creating Your Family Business Legacy. And we'll be chatting about that book and some of the key takeaways here on this episode today. Uh, His unique business perspective, which has been built upon an extensive background of more than 30 years of experience in law and finance, enables him to help business owners build and transition or sell their business, allowing them to create a family business legacy. Uh, Randy has practiced law in the areas of estate planning and business planning since 1989. In addition, he's a certified financial planner and has owned a wealth management firm since 1985. Uh, Randy understands the importance of family. He and his wife, Lydia, have five children. His firsthand knowledge of growing his own family business places him in an ideal position to help others. And for today's discussion, thank you, Randy, for being with us. And if you'll please add to that intro and tell us a little bit more about yourself. So, yes, I grew up in a family of six kids. My father was a pastor, and needless to say, we didn't have much money. And so uh, we learned how to work early. And my very first job was actually when I was six years old, and I picked cucumbers for a little company that made pickles. So I remember I got a a nickel a bucket. So I've been working uh, for a long time. And I've worked for many entrepreneurs when I was growing up, and it gave me a love of business and a love of the lifestyle that the, that the owners had. And I grew to really um, admire business owners because I could see the risks they took and the freedom and opportunity that they, um, that they had by being business owners, and I wanted to emulate them. So it's been a long, uh, long journey, but I've loved every bit of it, truthfully. Yeah, so no doubt that that was early influences that then shaped you and guided you in that direction. So did you go right into private practice or your own firm right out of college, or did you work for someone? What, what, what was the initial um, career path? Yeah, so career path for me was um, I worked for one year uh, as a cost accountant for a hospital corporation in Orange County, California. They were growing, buying hospitals and growing them, and so I worked there. But at night, I was studying for my Series 7 and life insurance license and and things like that because I realized I wanted to be on the side of helping um, and advising family business owners. So after a year of working that first job, I went to work with a Wall Street firm in Newport Beach, California. And I worked with that firm for a couple of years as a financial planner, um, advising uh, the brokers and their clients to help them make some um, good decisions instead of just buying and selling stocks and bonds. After a couple of years of that, I, because of some family issues, we moved up to the Central Valley in California and opened my own office. So 
after a few years of working in my own office, I realized that uh, I didn't know as much as I thought I did and that I had huge holes in what I needed to know to be a good advisor to business owners. And so I went to law school. I went to law school at night, as a matter of fact, and kept working during the day um, on my wealth management firm. And after a four-year stint in law school, um, which is what it takes at night, I went to work for two years after that with a law firm to sort of learn the business of law. And after that, I opened my own office in uh, about 1990 or 91. And from there, I ran a law practice and a wealth management firm side by side for uh, uh, many, many years. So it was, and, and nobody knew it was funny because I, I even had to get permission from the state bar because they weren't sure what to do with me. You know, nobody, nobody ran a, um, a wealth management firm and was a lawyer at the same time. So that's interesting. They didn't find any, they, they said, well, you're qualified for both and we don't see anything that can prevent us from stopping from from having you do it so you know just keep separate files and separate this and separate so I had them in uh, same building but two different addresses and different employees and different professionals but I was the only person that worked in both sides interesting you, you would now you think those things make sense that they would be combined but that was novel back then it was very novel that was 1991 so interesting all right, so you started, you had a successful practice, and then when did you, I'm assuming over time, you probably developed the concept, so when did you come to having this defined Braveheart planning process that is part of the book? Yeah, um, that evolved out of um, many years of counseling um, business owners um, and transitioning to the next generation, to preparing them um, for third-party sales or selling them to employees. And then um, I, I had a friend, his name is, or have a friend, actually, his name is John Brown. Uh, he's a lawyer out of Denver. And John um, is the guy that I call the father of exit planning, really. He laughs when I say that. But um, <laughs> he was doing, as a practice, as a lawyer, all he was really doing was business transition work. And so um, we became friends. I was one of the founding members of a group called Wealth Council, which is a large organization now. I'm not an owner of it, which I was, but uh, it, it became very successful. And uh, I know all the principles of, the, of that group. But um, so John worked with us in those early years um, of that group and, uh, you know, did some casework with him and such. And then he started BEI, which I mentioned in the book, Business uh, Enterprise Incorporated, which is an organization that trains exit planners. So you have to be either a lawyer, a, uh, a CPA, or a certified financial planner to be able to, to begin the coursework. But uh, So I did that many years ago. And of course, we, have, we had our own spin on it anyway. And ours is a little more family-focused than... Um, the straight up process that's taught by BEI, but it's a very effective process. I still, John and I are friends and we do casework together sometimes on big cases. So I have a lot of respect for John. And so at a high level, would you introduce what the process is, what the concept is, this Braveheart planning process? Just introduce it for us, if you will. Yeah. So the Braveheart process, the way we practice it, is really having a business get into the position or get prepared so that it's always ready. Um, for transition or exit. So 
Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, you've got to be 65 or 70 years old and you want to get your exit done and you come to us and get that work done. Most of our clients, many of our clients don't reach those ages because they transition out earlier or, or nature takes them out. So in the past few months, for instance, I've had um, two, two of my clients die. One, one was 45 and one was 47. They didn't make 65 wow. or 70. Uh, as a matter of fact, the kind of work I do really also was driven uh, this this idea of always being ready for an exit so that the family doesn't lose value in the event of a disability or a death or or things that happen just outside of your control as in this world. So my own brother-in-law was 45 and I had been, um, he was a partner in a business and I had been encouraging him to let me get his work done. This was way, you know, 20 years ago now. And um, he was 44 at the time, and I had kind of been pushing him, had a couple of kids and a wife that didn't work, and so I pushed him towards that and finally got him to let me do the planning work. So I did the planning work for the, for the business and also for the partners in the business. And about two months after I finished that work, he, had, he died. Wow. And so we have you know, taken care of I've, um, my sister-in-law and my nephews grew up out of that plan and she still is, you know, um, living out of that plan we did 20 years ago and it has been hugely successful. So doing um, planning is a really big deal and we want our business owners to get into the position where they're ready to exit and they run that business in such a way that they're always ready because I don't know if the exit's going to be an unsolicited offer to buy. I don't know if it's going to be they get tired of the business and they really want to sell. I don't know if there's a health problem that the spouse is going to have. And so the owner says, I just don't want to do it anymore. I want to take care of my wife. Whatever the issue is, I want the family and the business ready. And all it does is makes the business worth more money anyway because they're running it the way they should. Right. It makes sense both ways. Yeah. Not only does it prepare you, but it but it's really is the optimal way to run the business. That's exactly right. So I want to take a tangent here from a from a business perspective for you. You had been delivering obviously these types of services, advising small business owners or owners of all size on this topic. How did it come to you now to to package this and to brand this so effectively? How did you come to that? Um, that that's a really great question. I had actually been struggling with that for some years because I realized that the way we did things and what we do. It isn't really exit planning. Uh, it's really much more than that. And it's al also involved in that partly is my own um, faith because I realized that faith has a big part of, of the Braveheart business, if you will. It's, and building a Braveheart business really has, has to do with the idea of balancing things between what's important to the family and what's important to the employees and what's important to the owner. And, and it's, you know, it's considering others at least as important or more important than yourself. It, you know, it's being, having um, credibility and integrity in what we do and how we do it. And so, um, you know, I wanted to do this well and, and it, it isn't just, everything's not mechanical. Everything's not about money, you know. So in, in trying to wrestle with how that works compared with, for instance, just what the professions teach you, because I, I have um, typically have gotten, you know, a couple hundred uh, hours of continuing ed done for years and years and years. So I, I keep up with so many things. And, but it, eventually it just, it, those things aren't what, what matters the most. It's how these things interplay 
with the owners and the owner's family and their faith and, and, what, and what matters to them. So it was out of that struggle and wrestling with that whole thing that um, my son and my daughter and I basically came up with the process that incorporates those things as well as we can. And that's why we call that whole thing the Braveheart planning process. And at some point it was obvious or maybe going into it, all right, we have something here and now it's a standalone IP. We can market this obviously for the benefit of our audience as well as to generate business. And that that's where it evolved to. I mean, and you saw obviously that you had something that was unique. Right. But and, and so you saw this as a, something that could really make you unique in the in the industry and have a unique offering to your clients. Yeah, that's right. We've even trademarked that whole idea, the, the, the Braveheart planning process, the Braveheart exit, those things, they're trademarked in a number of um, areas. So yeah, we, we see it as valuable because it's different. It is unique. Um, I think it resonates, especially with um, today, for instance, I was on a, a webcast with a bunch of banks, with a bank consulting firm for a for a full hour and we had this discussion about this whole thing and I was able to present this and and I know that there's a good number of those banks that won't be interested in the way we do things because they are transactional oriented but I also know that there's roughly going to be about 20% of those banks that are going to buy into what I taught them and they're going to want to apply that and share that and be part of their clients and their customers lives as a result of what really matters so I'm really not after everybody. I'm after a small um, portion of the people because I know what, I, what I'm teaching and what I'm practicing doesn't resonate with everyone. Great. So, so I have uh, several businesses. In those, we have operating agreements. We have buy-sell agreements. Yeah. I've got life insurance. I've got a will, more, more than just an I love you will, but a proper will that sets up a trust for my daughter and so forth. Good. But, but what am I missing? And, and really the question is for the small business owners listening, where do you start? What, do, what are some of those key first steps that people need to take to make sure that they've got this prepared to pass on or to sell? Yeah, so communication, I would say, is a big deal, especially if you think that you're going to transition to children or, or to employees. I can't tell you the number of times that people assumed that they had a plan, but really what they had was a hope. They had a hope that the transition was going to be available or they had a hope that their son would take over or whatever the case was. But in hindsight, after we would get involved with him, we find out the son doesn't want to buy, doesn't want to buy it or doesn't want to even be involved even if it was given to him. Um, or we've had it where employees were, I, I've been three or four months into an engagement and finally I get the owner, let me talk to the key employee you think you're selling to. and. Oh, you don't need to talk to him. He's, you know, he's he's in. So I finally get to him. He's like, I'm not in. I don't want this business. I have other plans in two years, you know. So communication is a big deal up front of whatever you think your assumptions are. Um, you need to start talking about those. Secondly, you have to be careful of, of what I'll call um, silo planning. And that is the idea that you're, if you are the business owner or going to run your own um, planning, then you actually need to understand what it is you're doing, where you're going, and why you're going there. And that's the reason I wrote the book, because everybody, especially in the small end of the market, we typically work in what we call the 5 to 50 market. Um, 
We have managed sales of companies somewhere between 10 and just under 200 million. So I don't, I don't work a whole lot on the small end. Most of the network of our, the bottom sort of net worth we work with is around 5 million because we, you know, you, to pay for the work we do and the complexity, it has to be big enough to justify the money to the people. But I wrote the book especially for the, the small owners and the, and the small medium-sized market. And that is to help them understand that if they're going to run the process, that then the CPA is maybe going to suggest certain things that um, he wants them to do. And the law firm is going to do what he asks them to do, of course, and the, and the wealth management firm. And so you may get conflicting advice. You may be thinking that you know what you want, but at the end of the day, you don't know what you don't know. And so it can be a little bit dangerous. So the breadth of the book, it's, it is written at the level of an owner. It's not written as a, as a textbook, but it's got examples and, you know, my process step-by-step step to help you walk through um, covering the bases that, like you're talking about. So it is, it's just amazing to me when we come in and we actually, we look at things from the 30,000-foot view and we realize they've got a great law firm at the table, a great CPA firm, great um, property casualty for whatever their players are. And yet when we come in and we start to do our work, we realize that there's either old old documents or insufficient material or nobody's communicated here or we find holes. I've, I've never come into a case that I haven't found holes all over the place, frankly. So the I feel like if an owner is really does want to engage at the very least, Reading my book would it educate him to the point where he actually could understand what's going to go on and he can make sure that the process is being handled in a reasonable manner so that he doesn't have holes all over the place like we're talking about. Yeah, that's why this book is perfect for our audience who tends to be smaller businesses under that $5 million revenue mark. But that's the great thing about the book is it's, it's all there. And so much knowledge there to take away to start to implement. And even if you're looking to start a business, to start to get some of those ideas of how to go about it correctly from the start. The point about communication is such an enlightening one because I think that's so typical where we – we want to believe, you know, I want to believe that my daughter wants to take over my businesses, but she hasn't had the heart to tell me, Dad, I have no interest whatsoever, right? That's right. So that, that's such an important thing. Um, so let me, speaking about children, let's segue into that. You have two of your kids that work with you in your business. And so my question there, and I've worked with family as well, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners, what has worked for you? Uh, what tips or advice could you share as to how you've made that work well for you. So um, one of the things I would say, and one of the things we love, um, what I'll call Braveheart businesses, these kind of family-oriented businesses, is that you can use the business to leverage your family relationships. The, The family can benefit the business and the business can benefit the family. So when my kids were old enough to um, vacuum floors and take out trash, I started, I started them working in my businesses. So they grew up, understanding what it was to work. We had farming interests in California and I had them work on the farms. I wanted to teach my kids how to work. And I can tell you that having worked on a number of transitions over these these many years, that the kids that work in the businesses, when they ultimately are ready to take over control, the employees are cheering for them. They support them. They back them. They are ready for that leadership if they gain the respect. These kids that go out and, you know, they're raised by by parents that don't love them enough to, to discipline them or to teach them how to work. 
and then the parent decides they just want to step aside, they're trying to turn their business over to a loser, it isn't going to work because the employees do not respect them. They will not work for them. Yeah, and that'll be, that'll just lead to the failure of the it business. It leads to the in, failure in of the business. Order. So yeah, so once you get kind of past that part of training thing, then, and, and the kids are actually in the business and you're, they're old enough and you're, you know, they have to educate, you have to educate them up. And so we, because my kids are players in my business, we, the business pays for education for them. So, um, you know, two of my kids have worked on the CFP. My business pays for that. That's, um, that's great. My, so back to, but to the really important things, that has to do with respect for each other and the roles that we play and the separate roles that we hold for each other. So those things are very important. And then I'll just finish with this, that if you can't say I love you and I forgive you a whole lot, it will never work. That's great. And, and the respect, it also ties back to then you're touching on what we were talking about previously with communication. What I've found is you, you got to be very clear as to what the expectations are and what I expect you to do and not to do. And so that there's no assumptions then, especially when it comes to any kind of entitlement of assumptions on the part of our children coming into the business. Very much because you don't want the kids, um, you know, deciding that, oh, it's Friday and it's summer. I'm off on Fridays and everybody else right. is working. You know, that is yeah. never going to happen. Yeah, agree. Yeah. So we've talked about some of the the question I want to ask is what are some or one or two common mistakes you've seen small businesses make as it relates to preparing to sell or transition to business? We we've talked about a couple of them: the communication, the silo planning. <laughs> what else stands out to you that you've seen that is something that the people go about the wrong way, at least initially? Okay, so uh, two things I'll, I think I'll highlight there. One of them is that business owners need to understand, or three things really. One of them is capital is a coward, and the business owner needs to understand what that means. Capital is a coward. And so people that are buyers of businesses, they are going to look at your business through the eyes of the buyer, not through the eyes of a customer, and not through the eyes of an owner, but through the eyes of a buyer. And that means that they're going to be looking for reasons to pay you less money than you're asking for, they're also going to be looking for reasons why they should buy it, why they shouldn't buy it, and whether or not your growth story is, is uh, realistic, whether or not you've hit reasonable growth numbers, whether or not you have a next level management team, all these kinds of pieces of understanding that capital is a coward and common mistakes of an owner is that they look at their business through the eyes of a customer instead of through the eyes of a potential buyer as they're trying to grow it. The other thing that I'd like to say is when you get an unsolicited offer to, to buy your company, it is not generally wise for you to engage the seller of the buyer of the business on your own. And there are, there are unique and necessary roles in the sale of a company. And to the extent that a business owner starts to um, go down the road to engage the um, buyer on their own, they don't. They have never sold or bought many companies typically, and so they don't know what is expected, what the process is, and too often those kinds of those kinds of situations fail. So the buyer, you know, he finds things wrong or whatever, and, and he usually tries to grind the, the the business owner down on the price. So he offered X first, and then he comes into the business and starts due diligence and he starts squeezing, 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 squeezing. And, and so then uh, the, the owner 
you know, finally says, I can't, I can't sell it. I'm, I'm done, you know? And, and so then everybody kind of slowly has found out that the company is, is in negotiation to be sold. And when this, when the sale fails, he's poisoned the well. So now the community and some of the other people is like, wow, the, it didn't close. Maybe there's something wrong. And so then it's much harder when he wants to go to sale. If he tries to do this soon after one of those fails, it's very hard to go back to market. So we call that poisoning the well. Okay. So capital is a coward. Love, I love that expression. Yeah. And, uh, and then it's so critical to use an expert intermediary, whether that's an attorney or a business broker or someone that facilitates that interaction and gives you that guidance throughout the process. Yeah, it does. We like to have... Um, on the low end of things, typically about when you hit about the five million markets, it's you have to, you know, kind of hit the business broker side below that five million. Typically, the small um, investment banks will work down to around five million value, and that means though that you still, I think, you still need a deal lawyer in addition to uh, a company. So you want to have somebody that's in the negotiation of the sale side, but then you want somebody in the negotiation of the contract side. Those are different things, and what could be gained in the negotiation of the price could be lost in the negotiation in the contract side. So you need to have somebody that knows what they're doing and that makes a good part of their living actually handling sales of businesses, not, not a lawyer that does contracts once in a while or does estate planning or a generalist or something. Those are not what you want in the sale of your business. Yeah, great advice. Okay. All right. So in the book, you talk about this concept of value catalysts and uh, this whole approach of working on your business as opposed to in your business. And of course, that comes, at least from my experience, from Michael Gerber and the E-Myth. E it does. Um, so talk to me about value catalysts. Give me an example. What is that exactly? Yeah. Um, first of all, let me, I'll start with some some sort of unique ones. And that is sometimes companies are trying to buy your business because there are things in the business that they want. They might want patents or they might want processes or they might want, um, you know, sales, uh, a sales team that is, they love, you know, the execution or whatever the case is. And so sometimes businesses are bought for their parts, not necessarily for the business. Um, and that's a type of value catalyst. The normal ones, however, are things like um, having a company in place that has that's capable, I'm sorry, a management team that's capable of moving your company to the next level. And sometimes the people that take you, if you will, to the to the dance aren't capable of taking you taking you to the next level of the dance. So this is a common thing for us whenever we're building teams around our um, our planning is that sometimes the the law firm, for instance, that's brought you to a certain point isn't necessarily the right one to take me to the next level that I need to go to. And the same thing is true of management teams. Sometimes you have to move management teams down or out in order to build um, one that's capable of continuing to grow the company. That's one thing. Another one is business owners like to see, or buyers, I should say, like to see consistent and increasing revenue streams. Uh, you know, Henry, if you want to buy a business, you'd love to buy a business that doesn't have to start at zero on revenue every year. They kind of have a built-in start or 95% retention every every year, plus they got a 15 or 20% growth rate. That's kind of a fun business to buy. And it's one that makes somebody kind of willing to buy because capital being a coward, that's a safe type of a business to buy. Other kinds of things may be I mentioned before that 
the owner, if he's going to sell the business, he needs to have a realistic plan to increase his revenues, his growth, because he's been doing it a certain way and it's been growing at 15%, you know, but this next three years we're doing that plus this and we think that's going to bump us to 25% growth rate. Wouldn't you like to buy that? So, and the idea of businesses that are scalable, of course, lots these days, you know, people like to buy scalable businesses if possible. That's another uh, thing that certain buyers anyway are looking for. I'll give you another one or two maybe. I, um, for instance, a diversified customer base. That's a, an interesting one. Capital being a coward. If you have a company that has one, one client or one customer that makes up 40% of your revenue, or a company that has nobody, no, no customers make up more than 3% of revenue, which one of those is a safer revenue stream? I'm going to go with the one that doesn't have a predominant customer that's, that it can that's lose. Exactly, right? That's exactly right. Because if you, if 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 I if I buy that business and I lose that forty percent revenue stream, I'm going to discount your business as a result of that kind of customer in your. So right, and it's very possible because it might be based on a very tight relationship that now I'm not going to have with that customer. That is ex that's exactly right. So things like that. I mean, I've had some of these where one of the one of the um, companies that we were trying to work with when we first came to work with them, they had like three customers that made up 80 or 90% of their doggone revenue. Mm. So, yeah. you know, you've got to, you've got to build a saleable company to, to get a good sale. Yeah. Excellent. Fantastic insights there. So one of the biggest decisions that we face as small business owners is when to sell or when to exit. And in particular, certainly this question of when do I pass it to the next generation if in fact, mm -hmm. that's what they want. It's such a hard thing to do is to let go. Um, what, what are some thoughts you have and how do you guide people, at least at a high level, in helping them make that decision? Yeah. Sometimes it's observation from the outside. I mean, we've, we've encouraged um business owners to sell because I, I knew that I'll, I'll go back. I'll give you a couple stories. It's always fun to have stories. I think I'll go back to 98, 1998. One of my clients was a fairly large um, firm and a couple, three brothers involved in owning the company and um, no kid that was really capable of running it. And yet these guys are all older guys. And I'm knowing by 98, uh, you know, middle of 98 or early towards the end of 98, I'm thinking to myself, uh, we are, we're, we're nearing the end of, of a cycle here. And so I went to the guys and I said, listen, um, I've worked with you for some years. The, the business is running well. Things are in order. There's no logical takeover person here. If we, if we hit the end of this cycle, we may be five to seven years before we can do this again. So my advice to you is, let me take this to sale for you now. Let's go. You're ready. We, I think we can pull this off within nine months to a year. And so, um, you know, they agreed to do that towards early part of 99. We closed that sale um, in early 2000. And I had a couple of those similar situations there in that time period. But, you know, um, we have economic cycles we live through. And to the extent that you wanted to get out in 2002 versus 2000 early in the year, you were going to take less of a multiple. I don't care what industry you were in. Right. So having a, an understanding of where you are in cycles is, is important. Secondly, looking at the people in their particular circumstances, whether they're getting older, whether they have kids ready and available, whether they are facing burnout, 
whether you know there are a needs for capital to be infused into the business to take it to the next level and they don't really have the capital or don't want to take the risk to do it. There's a whole bunch of things like that that have to be considered when we're talking about when is it time to sell or um, you know when you're transitioning to kids now that's a different one to me it's not sick it's not cycle issues it's not you know burnout issues usually it's more of is the kid ready on a management level and and is the the parents are they financially secure in this transaction so that I don't have any risk in turning power over so whether we're selling to employees or to kids I want my owners always left in a position of control until they have no risk. Yeah. And it, of course, all of this and to big extent comes back to your point about making sure you build and run a business that's always ready for this because that's the way you should run it because that's the most effective way to run it. And so that then you don't have that as a barrier. Oh my gosh, my financials are in disorder or whatever the situation might be, or I haven't even had that conversation with my son or daughter. So that's why you manage the business a different way so that you are prepared for that when the opportunity presents itself or the need in the case of a death, for example. That's right. And so can I can I just insert one more thing here because I know yeah. that too often business owners are penny wise and pound foolish. Right. And when I say that, part of the that has to do with um, if your business makes up 70 to 90% of your net worth, which it tends to be for business owners, and you've got a million dollar pension plan, you pay the your wealth manager guy probably something around 1% to manage that for you. Uh, but you got a company worth, you know, four million or seven million or whatever the number is and you're so tight you don't want to pay professionals to help you manage the growth of that company well we like to apply what we call the uh, I didn't learn it's my it's not my concept the one percent solution M Mercer whoever I can't remember his name right now but a, a book by a guy named I think it was Mercer Capital from years ago I read the the one percent solution is that whether you're preparing for you know to get the company under control prepare for sale um, put in place the kind of wealth management, um, long-term planning that we need to do for um, sophisticated tax planning, exit planning, all the things that kind of make up managing the, the business itself. You need to be willing to spend 1% to 2% of the value of that business every year to manage that thing, just like you're willing to, to spend 1% of that value of your IRA to manage it. And it's a smaller, it will have a smaller impact on your life. So too often they just they try to avoid paying professionals and it's generally a large mistake yeah and that's a great rule of thumb and i think it's also about looking at it as an investment more so than an expense Thank you. an that's investment right. that you're in making that you're making and building your business and preparing your business very good point so tell me more about Long Business Advisors and the services that you all offer your clients. Yeah, so one of the things that we do, we do when our clients are ready or if uh, people come to us sometimes that, that aren't our clients right away, they want us to manage the sale of our business, uh, of their business. And so, as I mentioned, we have handled sales of businesses from between that sort of five to just under 200 million size. So we a pretty large range there. But uh, I love doing that because um, it, it allows me to use kind of all the pieces of what I love to do because <laughs> a lot of times they're not ready for sale. And so I've got to put them in sale in, in, the, re in the mode of, of getting ready for sale. And sometimes there's a gap between where they want to be and what they have. And so then we have to kind of do some business coaching to get them from, you know, point A to point B so they're ready to go. 
and uh, and I need to make sure that they've you know planned well and that they've estimated well and it's a different skill set though to manage ten million dollars or five million dollars or three million dollars than it is a company worth those amounts. So you have to teach them how to live with that once they are successful in it, and uh, not to make not to be foolish with the money because they're not just because they got money now doesn't mean they're brilliant investors all of a sudden. So you know you have all these pieces at play in that, but ultimately we divide it into three things: we manage sales of businesses, we help uh, business owners prepare for their exits from their business which typically is the largest financial transaction of their life. And then we coach, um, we do consulting and coaching to help businesses grow. Those are the three things we do. Perfect. That's wonderful. And I can tell you, you get excited about the fact that you offer the whole package. It's like a, there's a commercial running right now about the guy who comes and identifies you have termites and then they say, okay, fix it. No, no, we don't do that. Right. So, and so similarly, they come to you, you identify, well, you got some work to do or you got some planning to do, or you need to make these changes. And then you offer those services as well, or might partner with someone, but you yeah. help them holistically with that issue. We do because they are inseparable. I mean, I tried at different times, I've tried to do pieces of it, but it does not make sense. Yeah. Makes sense. All right, let's uh, start to wrap it up okay. and talk more about books. I'm a big book reader, and yeah. we've mentioned a couple. You mentioned The 1% Solution. We alluded to The E-Myth. Yeah. And, of course, there's your book that everybody should look for. And there'll be a link, by the way, to that in our show notes page at The How of Business. But is there another book or resource that you've come across recently that you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, sure. There's a couple I, I would recommend. Um, one of them is Double uh, Double. Cameron Harold, I think you probably know of that book. I have not read that, no. Okay. Um, Double Double, that's a pretty good book. Um, I like it. I would recommend that. Um, uh, I've got a friend um, that wrote a book called Sell Your Business for an Outrageous Price, Kevin Short. <laughs> He's an M&A guy out of St. Louis, friend of mine. Sell Your Business for an Outrageous Price. Really nice guy, too. Um, I like doing business with him. Scaling Up by Vern Harnish, really smart guy. So uh, those are some great titles. Some of them are uh, Scaling Up by Vern Harnish is a that is a you labor through that book, you don't read it. Okay. So so that's <laughs> so what I'll call the high end of of building a business at the micro level. Double Double is a step down from that, but still really good. And then Sell Your Business for an Outrageous Price is sort of a big picture discussion like we've had here. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thanks for those recommendations. And again, obviously, there's your book, The Braveheart Exit, Seven Steps to Creating Your Family Business Legacy. And again, folks uh, listening, we'll have links to his book and the other book recommendations on our show notes page at thehowofbusiness.com. Right. Excellent. Well, Randy, thank you so much for taking this time uh, to share with us and to provide some insights into this process, the Braveheart process. Very informative, very enlightening. Uh, can uh, I thanks give, for being with us. Can I, yeah, my, ahead, I'm sorry. can I give my website real quick? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Is, I was uh, going to end with that. So definitely tell us where to find you online. Yeah, it's uh, longbusinessadvisors.com. So pretty easy, longbusinessadvisors.com. And I want to thank you, Henry, for having me. That was really a fun show. You do a great job. Thank you. My pleasure. Yeah. So, and we'll have a link to the website and all the other places to find him online at the show notes page as well. So thanks again, Randy. Yes, sir. Folks, thanks for listening to this episode of The How of Business. If you're listening to us on iTunes, we would thank you and encourage you to subscribe to our show. And we look forward to having you on the next episode of The How of Business.
Thank you for listening to The How of Business with David Begin and Henry Lopez. We hope you found practical ideas to help you start, manage, and grow your business. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a comment on iTunes and go by LevanteBusinessGroup.com and learn more about Levante's resources to help you with your small business. Until next time, thanks for listening and go live your dream.